Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing our Advent sermon series called Who's Coming for Christmas? And of course, we're specifically thinking about how Jesus comes at Christmas, how he came that very first Christmas, and how we anticipate his coming again at the end of history. And throughout this series, we are reflecting on how Jesus comes as the prophet, the priest, and the king. These are the three offices or the three roles that God gave for life to flourish within his kingdom, right? As those leaders would follow God's way, the people would find that they would be living in blessing and prosperity. But Jesus comes not just as a, but as the, the fulfillment, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He came, we talked a couple weeks ago, as he came as the prophet, the, the revealer of truth, the mouthpiece of God that speaks to the people on behalf of God. Last week, we talked about how Jesus comes as the priest, the one who speaks to God on behalf of the people, who goes into the place where God dwells and through prayers and actions and ultimately the sacrifice of his own life ensures that our relationship with God can be reconciled and restored. And this morning, of course, we will talk about how Jesus is the king. And this week while I was in the kitchen, I had that 1983 Christmas movie, A Christmas Story on. It's the story of Ralphie and his quest, his ultimate quest for an official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. (laughs) And in the course of this story, Ralphie, his brother Randy, and Ralphie's good friends find themselves to be the object of terror and harassment from the bully Scut Farkas. At one point, as he's narrating his own story, Ralphie says this. He says, in our world, you're either a bully, a toady, that's one of the minions of the bullies, or one of the nameless rabble of victims. (laughs) And we see it throughout the movie. How Ralphie is victimized and terrorized, living in constant fear of what's going to come next. And I was thinking about how relatable this is to live in fear, to live in in this uncertainty, thinking about walking down the alley and not knowing if this would be the moment where you would be suddenly attacked. And, And maybe you haven't had this experience with a person that's a bully. I hope not. But when we think about it, do not the experiences that come at us out of nowhere often treat us similarly? The uncertainty of what is going to come next, terrorizing us with worry and fear, forces and enemies working against the, God, the life God wants for us, making us feel vulnerable and exposed. The loss of health, the loss of loved ones, the loss of dreams, filling us with fear and overwhelming us. 
See, the people of God were in the same situation way back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel when they first pleaded with God to give them a king. They felt pressed in on all sides by enemies, vulnerable and exposed, afraid and uncertain of how to move forward, pleading with God to give them a king who would fight for them, who would stand up for them, who would lead them into a more certain future. And God graciously gave them a king and has also given us a king. So we're going to jump into this this morning from Luke chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along on the screen, please do. But let's listen together for God's word speaking to us this morning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, will you add your blessing to the reading of your word, to the proclamation of your word, to the hearing, receiving, and responding to your word. By your Holy Spirit, we lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we just read comes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Israel's first request for a king. And yet, they find themselves once again in a very similar situation. There is no king on the throne of Israel at this time. There's no true king. There's Herod and you know, come lesser kings. But they're really puppets and agents of the Roman Empire who are an occupying enemy. And so they are experiencing the restrictions of occupation and captivity, longing for freedom, longing for life to be restored, longing for the king, the true king, who will come once again to rule and to reign over them. And then in breaks Gabriel with the announcement. The time has come. The true king is on his way. And so he shows up to Mary with that strange greeting. Greetings, Mary, you are highly favored. And Mary's like, this is weird. I'm not sure what to do with this greeting. And and, yeah, but Mary, you've found favor with God. You're going to give birth to the king. 
yeah, but how's that going to happen? I know where babies come from, and that hasn't been happening. And of course, this miracle is announced, that the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the son that you will give birth to will be called the Son of God. And this incredible promise is where we want to focus. Who is this child going to be who is the Son of God? He'll be great, Son of the Most High. Specifically, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, Gabriel is announcing that this child is the rightful king, the rightful heir to the throne of David. David was the greatest king in Israel. This would be the true heir. And actually, you could look at it through both the genealogy in Luke 3 as well as the genealogy in Matthew 1, and either through Mary's side or Joseph's side, Jesus is a descendant of David, a true heir to the throne. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Now, Jacob is the great, 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 we could keep going, great, great grandfather of Jesus, right? He's the one that God renamed Israel, the one whose 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And Gabriel is saying to Mary, hey, Jesus is going to be the true king over the true Israel, the one that the prophets have been telling about for years. This is all part of God's plan to ultimately bring the whole earth into subjection to the king. Because the prophets had been announcing that the king, the true king of Israel would not just rule over the physical kingdom of Israel, but over all the kingdoms of all the earth. And now the true king was on the scene. And you got to figure, this has got to be a profound promise to the nameless rabble that is Israel waiting for their king, right? Occupied by the foreign empire, longing for privilege and power. But when you, you fast forward the story a little bit, Jesus is born and then Jesus obviously dies and rises and moves on. What we find is that there was no king put on the, back on the throne of Israel. There was at least not on the physical country of Israel. So what's the deal? Is God not good to his promise? Are we misunderstanding what he says about a king that will come for Israel? Well, I think what we have to look at is actually look at the whole picture that the Bible tells us about Israel. Specifically in the New Testament, Paul at one point talks about how the true Israel are all of those in Romans 11 who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the true king over Israel who have now come to believe that he is the one that God had promised as Lord and King and Savior. And so we come to understand that the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of the household of Jacob is no longer about a physical location. It's about the people, the people who have put their faith in Jesus. It's a lot like the church. The church is not this building. This building is a tool of the church. The church people. The building is just a, a useful tool. But if we didn't have the building, we'd still be the church. And so the true Israel is still the true people of God who are putting their faith in him no matter where they live. So the kingdom of Israel knows no physical bounds any longer. It's why Jesus' kingdom extended throughout the Roman Empire, even though Caesar sat on that throne. 
That's why the kingdom of Jesus expands and spreads throughout America and Africa and Asia and to the ends of the earth even today, though there are governments, governments and monarchies in place all over, the, all over the world. Because Jesus primarily rules in the hearts and the lives of his individual followers and his church now And someday, when he comes again, that second coming, he will unite this spiritual and this physical kingdom so that God himself will be the only ruler left on earth. I mean, this is good news. (laughs) And yet, when we really think about the implications of it, I, I think this may be the office that we struggle with the most. That when I look at my own life, I, I struggle with Jesus as king because kings make claims over people's lives, don't they? Kings have an authority. And kings don't give suggestions, they give orders. And they expect the orders to be followed. And if the orders aren't followed, there's consequences for not following the orders of the king. And so to say Jesus is king and that his kingdom knows no end it means that it has no end in time, but it has no end in scope. That means every part of my life, every thought, every action, every desire, every hope, every dream is to be under the rule and reign and authority of Jesus the King. And so he's to sit on the throne of my life, not me. But man, as Americans especially, do we not have a pretty strong aversion to monarchies? Like, it's just baked into the fabric of our culture. Like, we started almost as an anti-monarchial movement, right? Anything that seems to smack of restricting our individual freedoms, we have a pretty strong opposition toward. Theologian R.C. Sproul tells a story about a friend of his named John Guest. John Guest was from England. He was an evangelist in the 1900s, and in the late 1960s, John Guest felt called by God to move to America to proclaim the good news. And so he arrives in America, and one of the first places he goes is Philadelphia. And people start showing him around and take him to Independence Hall and show him the Liberty Bell and start teaching him about the history of the American Revolution. And John's taking this all in until they go to Germantown, just outside of Philadelphia, to an antique shop that specializes in Americana and has signs that even date back to some of them to the revolutionary period. Signs with the slogans of the day, like, no taxation without representation, and don't tread on me. And, but the sign that really caught his attention the most was this, we serve no sovereigns here. And John reported that this sign made him stop in his tracks. That he had left his native England, come across the Atlantic Ocean, responding to the call of God to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And now he realized he wasn't in Kansas anymore. That he had come to a place vastly different than the one he had come from. He was filled with fear and consternation as he thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to a people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? See, the English still had a memory of the good times and thoughts about the monarchy that were positive. We as Americans have no 
vestige of that memory or thought. We share more of Lord Acton's perspective from the 1800s who said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that was his his commentary on the state of the popes and the kings who seemed to be getting different standards of justice applied when they were doing things that the normal folks were getting just slammed about. And we, we kind of experience this and feel this even in our day. That it feels like those who have power, who have influence, who have fame, who have money, seem to have a different standard than the rest of us, the rabble. Right? That sometimes those who have a little bit extra seem to get away with things that we can't. And with this inheritance and this history, I think if we're honest, we've become pretty skeptical about anyone who claims to wield authority over us. We reject kingly authority. No one should tell me what to do. Nobody puts baby in the corner. And no one should give you orders that you have to follow. You should set the direction for your own life. You should decide what's good and what's right. You should determine your path, your future. No authority should rule over you that you have to respond to, but your own. And yet, if we think about our lives critically, I'm not sure that this is actually true. I think we actually do have authorities over us. See, because anything we compulsively serve or follow has authority over us. Anything that we can't help but to prioritize, to serve, has that authority, and we could just change the name and call it a king. Because think about this, if safety and security are your highest priority, if that's what drives our thinking and our motivations if that's our highest value, then in reality, it's ruling over us because we're going to do everything that it takes in order to prioritize safety and security. If our, if our highest value are at our core, we can't stand the idea that someone else would have power over us. Then no one rules over us. Then we're going to do everything we possibly can in order to make sure that we're in control at all times. And that's not a joyful choice. That's an authority that's driving us that we are serving as a king. And we can make all sorts of things, and we do make all sorts of things into rulers and kings over us because we serve it. The pursuit of how we will live sexually, the, the drive for approval and acceptance. We can make fun a ruler over us because we prioritize that to the highest end that we don't want to miss out. We can make family a ruler over us and we can do everything in our power at every moment to try to orchestrate the life of the family into this perfect and beautiful thing and yet we do not have the, that kind of control. But we will serve it like a master ruling over us. When we look at our lives... Who or what rules over you? See, I think often we believe, or at least maybe unconsciously we believe, that these other rulers in our life will be the path to our freedom, will be the path to our ultimately being in authority, to avoiding the oppression and the vulnerability of the rulers or the bullies in our lives. And yet, 
These kings, or lesser kings, they don't lead us to freedom. They bring oppression and bondage because we become enslaved to serving them, even if it's an unconscious slavery. And so the question for us this morning isn't whether or not we have a king, but what king are we serving? Who rules over us? And would we consider giving that throne to Jesus? And maybe we would if we looked a little more closely at the character of this king, of Jesus. As we think about the one who is the true heir to the throne of David, which is what actually the earlier reading from Ezekiel 34 told us, that God was going to raise up a true leader, a true king who would be a shepherd over Israel. And so God is describing the true king as a shepherd. And so what does a shepherd do? I'm not a shepherd. Anybody a shepherd here want to come teach us? We, we, We know at least somewhat intuitively some of the things that shepherds do. I mean, shepherds provide for the sheep, don't they? They lead them out into the pasture. They lead them to the water. And along their way, they're ensuring that the sheep get what they need for their well-being, for their health, for their vitality. Sheep can be a little dumb. Sheep can just put their head down and follow their stomach. And so in the process, they can just follow a line of grass and just keep eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. And then when the cliff happens to be right in front of them, they'll just keep walking right off of it. In the same way, if they were following their stomach as king, it would lead them to treachery and death. Instead, they need to follow the shepherd who will lead them to a place of well-being and provide for them. The shepherd protects the sheep when the enemies attack. When the bears and the wolves and the lions tear the sheep apart, the shepherd gets between the enemy and the sheep and protects them, does whatever it takes to ensure that they'll be safe. And so Jesus, it comes as this true shepherd king. Who are the enemies in your life? Who are the Scott Farkases? The bullies that are too big for you, the uncertainties, the fears, the vulnerabilities that are pressing in on you that you do not feel equipped to overcome, Jesus comes to stand up to them for you as your shepherd king to protect you, to lead you to life, even if it costs him his own, which it did. And sometimes we experience the fullness of these promises in this life, provision, protection, guidance. But sometimes we don't see these play out completely, where we get overwhelmed by the enemies, where our health deteriorates and we lose the battle, where someone oppresses us, or a fear actually does come true. But the beauty of Jesus' kingdom is that it knows no end, that even in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of our waiting for the promises to be fulfilled, he still reigns as king. And his kingdom extends beyond the circumstances of everyday life into an eternal kingdom that knows no end, where these promises that are made provisionally for today are ultimately completely and utterly fulfilled in eternal pasture, eternal rest from the battles and the uncertainties of life. And it's been secured for you and for me because he came at Christmas 
died on a cross and rose again. And in the midst of that, overcame all of the enemies of life, sin, the devil, our propensity to try to be king and queen and reign on the throne of our life. This was a king that didn't use his authority for his own convenience, for his own well-being. Instead, used his power and authority to voluntarily give it up for you and for me. This is the king who came and served us, though he's the one worthy of being served. Is this not a king that we would welcome on the throne to honor and worship and love him because this is how much he has loved us? This is the true king. This is the one that, this is why Mary is able to have this profound obedience. (laughs) I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Let what you have said be fulfilled. Mary knows that she is going to walk a difficult road after this. She's going to endure ridicule. She could be divorced by her betrothed husband. She could be stoned to death for her apparent or supposed promiscuity. And yet she knows her obedience will lead her to a place of freedom as the shepherd king leads her into open pasture and rest. See, this is what obedience to our king leads to, not restriction, but true freedom. Chuck Swindoll was a a pastor, and he tells a story of an evening that he was able to spend with an astronaut, uh, General Charles Duke. General Duke was on the Apollo 16 mission to the moon, and I can only imagine all the stories that were told that evening. I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. Like, that was the first thing when I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I'm fascinated by all of this. And, you know, Chuck was, was fascinated as well as he's telling stories. General Duke's telling stories of, of their actual landing on the moon and those first steps out the door into space and driving the rover and, the, and then even walking on the surface of the moon. And just amazing. And at one point, Chuck couldn't help but to interrupt him because he had this question he, he asked him, hey, when you were out there, when you were out there walking around, weren't you able to, to just make some of your own decisions? Weren't you free to do, some, to do your own experiments, to do what, what you would please, to take just a little extra time for yourself? <laughs> and General Duke's response was, well, sure, Chuck, if we didn't want to return to Earth. <laughs> See, because the point was to get home. And getting home was predicated on their being obedient, listening. See, the freedom of walking around on the moon was totally dependent on their obedience to the authority, giving instructions, needing to change at any moment based on the circumstances so that they could get to the moon, carry out the mission, and get home. Obedience to the authority was required. And they had landed on the moon with extra fuel because of their obedience. How much extra? One whole minute's worth. See, they had to be obedient because if they didn't, they weren't getting home. See, obedience doesn't have to be restrictive. It can lead to this incredible freedom to walking on the surface of the moon and coming home to tell the story. It's in the face of enemies, of health, of pain and loss, in the vulnerability that we experience, freedom comes when we say yes to the true king, the shepherd king, Jesus, to his plan and his way and his will, to not let the lesser kings that rule over us continue to have authority. Who's coming for Christmas this year? The king. 
the shepherd king, to usher in his rule and his reign, to give you a life of freedom today, even in the midst of the suffering and the uncertainty and the trial, and to secure for you good pasture and freedom at the end of life, the end of history, and well beyond. This is the king who comes at Christmas. Will we let him have the throne of our lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much that you have sent Jesus to be a true king. Lord God, when we look at our lives, there are all sorts of, of rulers that we follow compulsively, sometimes even unconsciously that just oppress and hold us captive. Lord, allow us the grace to get off the throne of our lives to oust those would-be rulers, to welcome Jesus, the true king, the shepherd king, that we can follow his way with joy, with gratitude, knowing that we have been loved beyond what we can imagine. Give us that ability to love you back, to joyfully and obediently follow you into the life of rest and pasture and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.